And we're back from hiatus, and uh, a great hiatus it was, I have to say. Uh, uh, too many of those, and I, we won't come back at all. Uh, this is episode 197 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, today we're going to be interviewing Mara Vistendahl, uh, who's the National Fellow at New America Foundation and a contributing correspondent for a correspondent for science. Science magazine. Uh, um, she's written a great Wired article that explains and dives into the details of the social credit rating system in China uh, that we're going to see more and more of. Uh, and so we'll be uh, uh, digging into that with Mara. Uh, Mara, welcome. Thanks. Great to be on the show. All right. And uh, joining us for the News Roundup, uh, Maurice Schenk, who's uh, our former managing partner in London uh, and now an advisor to Steptoe on uh, European technology and cybersecurity issues uh, and uh, 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 deeply familiar with uh, uh, tech developments in China as well. So we'll ask him to stick around and talk tomorrow with us. Uh, Maury, great to talk to you. Great to be back for 2018. Yes, uh, and uh, and we're getting close to episode 200, so uh, uh, it's going to be an exciting uh, January. Uh, and Nick Weaver, uh, uh, who is senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute at Berkeley and a lecturer in the Computer Science Department at UC Berkeley, uh, and our go-to uh, uh, expert on all things technical uh, uh, with a policy twist. So, uh, Nick, it's great to have you. Thanks very much. And I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's get started and let's dive into a pretty technical uh, issue that I suspect has a lot of policy implications that we can pull out. Uh, it's yet another set of security vulnerabilities that have been found. Uh, these um, under have been announced this really two sets, but they're related. Uh, uh, and the names are Spectre and Meltdown. We've been hearing a lot about them. They started as, oh my God, Intel's going to lose its market. Uh, and now it turns out uh, it's more like, oh my God, uh, none of us have security in our hardware. Um, a, Nick, can you explain what the problem is in words of, uh, you know, less than three syllables? Uh, yes, or at least I will try. So we've been building more and more transistors, more and more switches on our computers for about 40 years now. This is Moore's Law. But so what do we do with them? There's basically only two things that we figured out how to do with more transistors. The first idea is parallelism, that if I can do two things at the same time, let's do them both at the same time. And the second idea is caching, that is recording what you've done in the past because that affects what you'll do in the future and the things around it. Now, this interacts very poorly with the security principle we want, which is isolation, that if program B is running on the computer, it should not be able to affect anything about program A without permission. So... Spectre and Meltdown are what we call side channel attacks. So rather than going in the front door, you'd be subtle. 
And what it comes down to is modern processors, in order to exploit parallelism, guess. So you see a statement like, if X, then Y equals A plus B. And the computer basically guesses that X is true, even if it doesn't know it's true yet, and starts to calculate Y equals A plus B. Because if it turns out to be true, then it can just dump in all the work it's been doing as though it was a really fast computer rather than two computers operating simultaneously. Correct. And if it turns out X is not true, well, it throws away the work and is supposed to ensure that it's like that computation never happened. Unfortunately, the problem is with the modern branch predictors and the like, there is a side effect. Oh, so, so X, in they, calculating, they, 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 they say, well, X isn't true now, uh, but it might be true soon, so I'll just hang on to that in a cache. Uh, it's slightly different. It's more like, I think X is true, so I'm going to calculate Y equals A plus B. Mm -hmm. Oops, X was not true. I'm going to throw away the result for Y. But in the process of having calculated Y, I've ended up setting some state in the cache or it's taken some level of timing or some other added, or some other item that can act as a signal so that I can actually find out something about what Y would have been. Mm -hmm. And so what I do is I do a computation that is not true. So X is not true, but the computer doesn't know this. The computer thinks X will be true. Do a calculation Y equals something or other. And how long that takes and what side effects that does tells me about what Y would be. Ah, okay. And so what meltdown is, is you're not supposed to be able to read the kernel's memory. So in meltdown, you create a loop that that the uh, computer thinks is going to be taken. You do a read from kernel memory and then do a decision based on what that kernel memory is. So, you so could, this allows you... So let me, let me, let's see if I can put this in security terms. You could say, if X is true, um, encrypt the result with your private key. And then you say, oh, actually, actually, X isn't true, but I'm going to check to see how long it took to you to encrypt that to get a feel for how long your private key is. Pretty much, although it's a little more uh, low level. So it's X is not true. I want to know what Y is from kernel memory. Mm -hmm. I fetch Y, and then if Y, the last byte of Y is zero, I write in one place. If the last byte of Y is one, I write in the other. And so that will take different amounts of time and create different fingerprints on the cache. Okay. And using that, you can figure out information. So this this is particularly – what's scary about this is we always assume the safest, most secure stuff is hardware. And this is a problem with the hardware, how the hardware handles this. Uh, uh, and we have assumed that – if we properly sandbox applications, we can uh, keep information from applications that are running on the same chip. Uh, and this casts real doubt on our ability to do that. And it probably it's a big deal for 
not just running two applications on your phone or your computer, but if you're running a data center where you've got a whole bunch of cloud ac- activity, um, this allows people to jump from their part of the cloud to somebody else's. Is that fair? Yes. And really what it comes down to is there's a fundamental disconnect between caches and isolation barriers. So really, at this point, we can only conclude you actually have to flush every cache across an isolation barrier if you want it to be robust. So Meltdown only affects Intel processors. And it sees there's patches available that will slow things down by up to 20% in the worst case. Real world, only a couple of percent, but worst case is really bad. And that's because it effectively flushes a critical cache whenever the operating system returns back to a program to prevent that program from being able to read the operating system's memory. So the first first piece of practical advice for listeners, if you're concerned about this and, uh, you know, pretty soon you'll want to be concerned about it, you need to do the updates that you're going to get from your operating system uh, uh, provider, and you might have to turn off your third-party um, uh, security uh, anti-malware uh, tools in order to do it. Is that fair? Uh, you shouldn't have to uh, turn off your third-party tools. If you have to, you should get rid of them and get different <laughs> third-party tools. Exactly. Okay, that's, that's true. However... The the interesting thing is the Meltdown patch actually has already been deployed and was actually deployed weeks ago. And in fact, the disclosure of Meltdown Inspector was accelerated because people were going, hey, why does this Linux patch do this huge performance hitting thing? Mm. Oh, there's something interesting here. Okay, And so... When people saw that patch and saw the implications of it, they actually reverse engineered the vulnerability remarkably quickly. And so at which point they just decided to go public with the information. Got it. Maybe there are, maybe we should start thinking about, uh, exactly how we do these patches to obscure, uh, the, uh, uh the consequences. Uh, uh the, it's impossible. You think so? Uh, you know, yeah. what, what if, what if they had put a bunch of stuff in there that didn't have a big impact on performance because it wasn't actually being used and then they dumped out a sh- smaller piece of code that utilized stuff that had already been put into the, uh, the update? No, because this update was something really strange. This okay. update was basically unmapping a huge amount of memory on return from context switch. So this was anomalous in and of itself. Okay. So uh, we know what we should do, but this is, I mean, this is architectural. This is hard to solve, isn't it? Well, there's two problems. There's the Intel-specific problem with Meltdown, which they can and should fix pretty easily. And then there's the Spectre attacks, which affect everybody. That class of attack affects ARM, it affects Intel, it affects AMD, it affects PowerPC, it affects everybody. So for those attacks, what you have to do is you have to re-architect how you do isolation barriers. That 
instead of just going, hey, these isolation barriers are easy, you have to explicitly flush all this information. And the net result is fairly costly. So, for example, Chrome has the ability to isolate different bits of JavaScript at a fine-grained enough detail that Spectre no longer works. But that's not deployed yet, or not deployed by default because it has uh, performance issues as well as some usability issues. And so what this really forces us to do is rethink the idea of um, – of uh, weak isolation barriers. We can only do strong isolation barriers or not at all. So I, it, one lesson I would draw from this is that we have been making Moore's Law work by cheating, right? We've been doing parallelism. We've been doing caching uh, as opposed to just making the, com- the computer faster uh, uh, by 100% every 18 months. We've found Actually, other ways that- to do it, right? No, there isn't. That um, no, 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 how that, you up that's... clock speed on a computer, how you make the clock run faster, is you pipeline it more, which means you have increased parallelism. So does this mean is this this is clearly the end of Moore's law, right? Now Moore's law is running backwards for the, with this fix. Not really, because the Moore's law optimizations, these parallel optimizations, only cause problems when we cross these isolation barriers. So what's going to happen so is you we're going we to take a performance you can, you can, hit. You think we can fix this uh, if we just roll Moore's Law back a bit? Yeah, because these isolation barriers are not everything. You don't want an isolation barrier every instruction. Isolation barriers are rare things, relatively speaking. And so what we really need to do is just the notion of have isolation barriers that are, yeah, isolation barriers are expensive and give up trying to do them cheaply. So Intel is getting sued, already has three uh, class actions, maybe more now, uh, against it over this. Um, every single chip it's shipped since the early 90s is subject to this. Uh, um, are they? Do you think they are likely to actually suffer? Uh, uh, you know, it's it's easy to file these lawsuits and hard to win them. Um, but I note that banks have been willing to bring this kind of class action against uh, uh, people who've held credit card data. It's conceivable that the banks and other big business uh, companies are going to say. Um, you know, we're not getting what we paid for with the Intel products or maybe with all of the products that uh, have this flaw. Are we going to see a welter of litigation? Uh, yes, because class action lawyers are piranhas, but I don't think it will win because that 20% figure that everybody keeps banding about is worst case. Got it. So if you have some sort of database that's Accessing a huge number of files all over the place or a workload where you have uh, a huge amount of network traffic, then you might see a 5% performance hit. All right. And that is – I, I think that's what's fatal to the lawsuits because this means that every single plaintiff has a different 
need for speed and a different uh, 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 set of uh, uh, programs that they're running, which means that there is no class. It's a whole bunch of individual claims for a buck and a half each, and they aren't going to uh, – they're going to end up settling pretty cheap. That's my guess. And And as a bonus – if you're actually running in the regime where you are pegging your CPU 100% and are doing all this I.O. stuff so that you're OS sensitive and you're so performance sensitive that matters, you've architected your system wrong in the first place. <laughs> yes, okay. All right. Uh, well, that was a deep dive. I hope uh, our listeners are prepared to uh, 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 to swallow it. But as you have said, uh, uh, Nick, when in corresponding with me, if you just go to the XKCD uh, um, uh, latest uh, cartoon, it explains it clearly in terms of the trolley problem and row hammer and uh, and gives you the right advice. So uh, uh, if you want to, yep. if, if if you regret having listened to this uh, and still are confused, XKCD will uh, uh, give you the answer. Okay, customs uh, and border protection has uh, is being punished for another good deed. Uh, they put out a. Uh, a new policy statement on what they do with electronic devices at the border where they have full legal authority and have since 1789 to uh, uh, inspect anything that's coming across the border, no matter how intimate. And uh, if you think people didn't have intimacies in their diaries before 1982, uh, you're um, uh, deluded. Uh, and they've always searched those, and they search computers as well. Uh, they announced that they were going to restrict their searches so that they only uh, are basically going to look at people's devices, and this is very rare in any circumstance. I think the there was an increase from about 0.005% risk of, uh, uh, no, sorry, a 0.007% risk of uh, getting uh, uh, your electronics looked at to a 0.005%. Uh, tiny numbers, 20,000 uh, to 30,000 in the last year. And they've announced that uh, basically they're not going to hook your device up to actually look through it in an orderly and detailed way unless they have some suspicion that uh, uh, you're engaged in criminal or terrorist activity. So that, and, and they're not going to go from your computer to pull down stuff from the web, uh, from the cloud. Uh, so actually substantial limitations uh, compared to the Obama administration. Naturally, the press is, is calling this a shocking abuse by the Trump administration. Uh, um, a, but in fact, I think all the news here is CBP is mostly limiting itself more than it used to. And um, crossing the Atlantic, Maury, um the the president macron has announced he's got all kinds of new ideas for screwing with cyberspace uh, in the name of stopping fake news and russian interference uh, what what is he proposing to do well it relates to elections which is you know what the us is focused on as well macron wasn't very happy that right before his successful election as president there was news about him having an offshore account which um, was completely false, and um, and and, and, and a gay lover. I think uh, uh, you know. I, I I we really should be looking more closely at Putin. He just you know he's very defensive on that issue. Yeah, well, and the gay lover one, he didn't deny quite as uh, strongly. <laughs> but 
Um, but in any event, what he's announced is, well, he gave a speech a few days ago, so we haven't seen the proposed legislation yet, but announced the drafting of legislation for um, during election periods that there would be certain limitations on fake news. And what's been mentioned is transparency for sponsored content, so the identity of the advertiser and and uh, those controlling the advertiser, possible caps on amounts that can be spent on certain sponsored content, um, pretty far away from where the U.S. is with Citizens United, and possible content removal or website blocking with respect to that content. Yeah, but the, some of that stuff sounds that sounds is, like stuff we could do. Right? We we could have, uh, in fact, Farah does pretty much require disclosure of certain kinds of sponsors. Uh, um, I was more interested in in the suggestion that he was actually going to block websites that had fake news on them uh, in the run up to an election. Um, is is that serious? Well, I mean, they're saying that that's a possible remedy, but we haven't seen the legislation yet. You know, is Opponent Mark, uh, Marine Le Pen said, you know, how do we judge what fake news is, which is the obvious question. Uh, so it, it's a, that's the question. Can it be done in a practical manner? But I think it's going to be proposed. Wow. Okay. Well, she should be particularly sensitive because the Germans have come out with, have, with you know, this is slightly different, but they, they're, they're an effort to regulate online hate speech by uh, squeezing the big uh, uh, Silicon Valley companies has now taken effect, and it's quite predictably melted down into uh, uh, turning all of the uh, anti-immigration uh, uh, parties' uh, leaders into martyrs uh, uh, because they made remarks about um, Muslim immigrants. Uh, I and uh, I, you know I don't know if you followed the the German laws implementation, but it certainly sounds as though it's a rocky few weeks. Yeah, well, there was, there's been a big scandal in the past week because um, Beatrix von Storch, one of the a member of the Alternative for Deutschland Party, which is the right wing party, had a tweet accusing police of trying to quote appease the barbaric Muslim rapist hordes of men. Um, and yeah, because that was I think that, that was Twitter. that was because they had uh, issued some kind of season's greetings in Arabic for the first time. Uh, yeah, something like that. Um, but yes, I, I think that is right. And she, uh, and, and that was viewed as violating the hate speech law, which Twitter basically has to decide how to enforce and took it down. And then a magazine called Titanic, um, did an send up to that, you know, purported to tweet on her behalf saying, the last thing I want is mollified barbarian Muslim gang, gang raping hordes of men. Um, and, and Twitter took that down they, too, right? <laughs> Twitter took that down too. And, you know, and, um, from a U.S. perspective, um, I mean, they're both objectionable. We couldn't take either down from a U.S. perspective. From uh, a continental perspective, you know, blocking hate speech like uh, the first tweet is pretty common now, but everybody seems up in arms about the parody being taken down. Well, naturally, because that, that, those those were good lefties, uh, and you, you, everybody knows that hate speech is only on the right. Uh, at least Twitter knows that. Uh, uh, okay, um, let's do two or three quick stories because uh, we're running out of time. Uh, I cannot resist this, though. Uh, a company called Keeper, which is a kind of crappy second-rate uh, competitor with LastPass, as far as I can say, can see, uh, was incorporated into uh, Microsoft's uh, product, and then it turned out had a 
security flaw in the uh, uh, web bookmarklet that you use to uh, to actually recall your passwords when you get to the site that you want to log into. Um, and these things are very convenient, uh, but obviously if they're not good security, they make you much less secure than if you just used uh, 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 you know, your own memory to, to keep the passwords. Uh, um, Tavis Ormandy at Google found a flaw in Keeper, publicized it, uh, Ars Technica, Dan Gooden writes a story saying, yeah, there's a big flaw in this stupid program. Uh, and, uh, the owners of the stupid program, instead of, uh, just fixing it and apologizing, decided to sue him for libel. Um, and he is now struggling with a libel complaint that is really worth reading. It's egregious in the extreme. Nick, I, uh, did I fairly state what the, uh, nature of the security problem is? Um, yes, although I'd add um, one bonus. And the bonus is, is reading through the complaint about the only thing that they really contend as a false statement of fact is the notion that the flaw is in Keeper, not Keeper's browser extension. And let me tell you, using a password manager without the browser extension kind of defeats the purpose of the password manager. Yeah, because you want to go to the, you want to go to the site and then and click on sign in and have the uh, uh, extension start filling in your credentials. Yep. And so, if uh, I seriously hope that Dan Dan Gooden will be able to get uh, California's anti-slap law. In play, because if so, uh, Keeper will turn out to be a big loser when it comes to having to pay the defendant's legal fees. So I have a question here. Where the hell is Google on this? This was their uh, report that Gooden is just repeating. Why isn't Google already in this lawsuit, at least as amicus, to say this is nuts? Uh, in fact, where the hell is Microsoft on this? They put this flawed product into uh, their distribution um, and uh, – uh, presumably they want things to be secure. It is not a mature, you're not showing maturity, uh, in your security model. If what you do when you get a report of a, a bug is you sue the people who announced it. Um, a, and you would think that uh, Microsoft would be saying, you want to be a part of our, infra- uh, uh, our ecosystem and you want to have good security. One of the things you shouldn't be doing is suing people for libel for what appear to be pretty accurate reports about security problems. And not only that, but um, a security problem that was apparently reported for six months. And um, security vulnerabilities that exist for several months in security-critical software is just bad, and suing about it only makes it worse because now everybody knows what loser's keeper is. Yeah, yes, uh, a keeper's loser uh, or something like that. Uh, I, I, there's a, there's a, a child's uh, rhyme about that. Uh, um, okay, I last thing I want to cover is Hal Martin. This is the uh, hoarder of um, epi- uh, of uh, exploits uh, uh, who took all this st- all the stuff from NSA home, put it on his home computer, and had it compromised, we think. Um, and he has now pleaded guilty 
to one of the 21 counts that the U.S. government is contemplating bringing against him, and he's letting the other 20 ride. I guess he's hoping that the, you know, he's going to take a 10-year sentence and hope that, you know, in the long run, the Justice Department says, yeah, 10 years is enough. It was an odd uh, outcome. Yeah, it's really strange because the the plea is not an agreement. Um, it's basically saying, yeah, I did it. Postpone sentencing on this until all other 20 charges are resolved. Oh, and I've already stipulated I'm basically getting the maximum 10-year sentence on this. Yeah, I, I I think it's a it's a kind of uh, unilateral plea deal offer, and uh, uh, he may be hoping that uh, uh, to the judge or to the Justice Department when they look at this, uh, they say, you know, that's probably enough. He's going. I forget how old he was, but he's in his fifties, if I remember right. Uh, uh, he's not uh, uh, he's not going to come out and uh, uh, have a new wife uh, or a new life. Uh, um, so maybe. Uh, that's the plan here, but it is very odd because he's really giving away a lot of leverage. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mara, you've been very patient. Uh, uh, I do want to talk to you about this great article. Uh, uh, I think we've all heard that uh, uh, the Chinese economy slash government has developed a social credit rating system in which all of your uh, interactions on the net contribute to uh, an evaluation of whether you're a good citizen, including a good communist. Uh, uh, but um, your article explains why, how it works, why everybody loves it, or at least is part of that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and it gives us, I think, a view of our own future. Uh, uh, so could you just give us a quick overview of how the social credit rating system works and where it came from? Sure. So um, I mean, the origins date back several decades, and, and um, I don't want to bore you with all of the um, policy discussions that happened, but at, at, um, at some point the Chinese government leaders realized um, that they needed to come up with a better way of managing society. And, um, you know, as you probably know, the, the Chinese government is, uh, stocked with engineers who, um, who, who like to conceive of, um, society as a, as a system. Um, and so they actually used, um, um, techniques from systems engineering to come up with this, um, idea called social management. Um, and that has been, yeah, you know, I, I, I just in- quick, quick diversion. I think if you yeah. if you go back to the goals of centralized state policy or economic planning, mm-hmm. uh, the assumption was that the planners had enough data and enough flexibility to make a whole bunch of decisions. And frankly, if those planners mm-hmm. had had our current computer capabilities, uh, communism would have lasted mm-hmm. a whole lot longer. That's an interesting thought. Yeah, it, it, it would be interesting to, to explore that. I mean, um, what what the reality that they did face, you know, from the 80s on when China started launching economic reforms was uh, you know, massive migration, um, people no longer connected to their work units, uh, and, and these efforts to kind of keep tabs on the population. Um, 
disintegrated. Um, and uh, but at the same time, you know, for the past um, decade, especially um, as the population has adopted smartphones, um, you have these new technologies that enable a kind of softer surveillance. So I can I stop mm-hmm. you there there because I was interested in in, yeah. in the uh, how this played out. Uh, uh, obviously the the control mechanism of saying you have to live in this place and then we'll use the cops who live there to to keep track on you of you collapsed mm-hmm. when everybody moved to the city. Uh, but from mm-hmm. the point of view uh, of the City dwellers and maybe even the people who had just arrived, uh, what that meant was there was this complete dissolution of social bonds and a massive increase mm-hmm. in the amount of scamming and con artists uh, that people were encountering. So uh, there was actually a clamor for finding a way to replace the old system of, you know, putting black marks by people's names in their files in this in the village where they were forced to live. That's true, and I think that's one of the um, that's one of the aspects of the system that's not often discussed. That that um, you know, if you look back ten years ago, there were really scam artists everywhere. Um, to some degree, things have really uh, improved, and 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 the, for a lot of you know, your average um, Chinese citizen is just trying to go about their lives and you know make sure that the business they the, the guy they hire to fix up their apartment or to um, to walk their dog is who he says he is. Um, um, some of these developments are, are pretty welcome. Um, and, and so the social credit um, system is part of this larger framework to kind of um, get more of a grip on, on management of the whole society. Um, and uh, to some degree, it was, a, it, was a, it was a difficult topic to kind of write a magazine feature about because it's, um, because it's so vast, so it, it, it encompasses um, uh, companies. There's a separate system for monitoring um, companies and, and scoring their performance. Um, and also, uh, in the system that's gotten more attention is is um, the one that um, scores individuals or, or will eventually score individuals. Um, and and then at the same time, as the as the government um, the, the the plan the government's plans for this. Um, individual rating scheme um, really started to be discussed in 2014, and and around the same time you saw China's big tech companies, um, you could say separately or not, you know, coincidentally launching their own um, credit scoring um, apps or, or credit scoring efforts. And this is principally um, and ten, Tencent and right, Ali, Tencent and Alibaba are the two companies that have really uh, jumped into this with both feet? Uh, yes, particularly yeah, particularly Alibaba through its um, affiliate and financial. Um, Tencent was a, a bit of a latecomer to um, the credit scoring, but there were also several other companies. They were, there were eight companies originally giving licenses by the um, People's Bank of China to develop the credit scoring scheme. Yeah, so there's there's credit scoring schemes, and and that's one thing. But um, they ride on how you spend your money, and there really are two mm-hmm. big money uh, 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 phone phone money systems uh, in China right. that have the records to really fine tune this system, and that I, I, is is what I think of as uh, uh, Alipay and uh, WeChat. 
at a ten cents WeChat. That's that's completely true. Right, right. Yeah, they're in a um um they're kind of neck and neck in competition right now for people's wallets. Um and you know part of what was so fascinating to me about this story is that it's really enabled by the by the rapid uptake of mobile payments in China. Uh and you know, I lived in China for nearly a decade um and left right as as people were starting to pay for everything with their phone. Um, and, and then on the time, you know, when it returned after six months or a year, every visit I could just see, you know, this amazing uptake. Um, it's, I remember it's like a hundred uh, times what we, what we do here in terms of electronic payments. It's, it's, just, it's staggering. Right, right, right. Yeah, I remember going into a convenience store in Shanghai and seeing a migrant worker and this was like two years ago, maybe, and I seen a migrant worker whip out his phone to pay for his um, his groceries, and I'm thinking like, well, some, you know, this, this huge change is really is really underfoot. So um, I, I the, the thing I liked best from your from your article in that regard is that the beggars in the street all have little QR codes so that you can just uh, download funds to them, and nobody has to uh, uh, get their hands dirty with uh, with actual cash. That, that's actually this whole, that actually sparked this whole separate discussion as I was, you know, among editors at Wired over how that worked and, uh, you know, did the beggars themselves really have smartphones? Um, and it seems in, in, in some cities, um, there have been businesses that have given beggars QR codes to, um, to kind of advertise their services. Um, in other cases, I, I suspect it's, you know, the, the, the mobs that control begging rings, um, would, they would be the ones collecting the money. Oh um, my God, of so, course. Yes. So that, so they, 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 yeah. they, they, they take I mean, the vigorish I mean, and, uh, uh, you get, you get, uh, the nut that remains. I, yeah, I would assume so. That's something I didn't, you know, spend weeks reporting out, but, um, but, but you definitely do see, you definitely do see, um, panhandlers with, with uh, QR codes out on the street. Wow. Okay, so you've got really the replacement of cash at, at, at one level. So little, little tiny mm-hmm. transactions, uh, and all enabled by dirt cheap smartphones. What does a smartphone cost? A, 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 a really cheap phone in, uh, in China? Can you get one for 40 bucks? I, don't, I haven't looked into the cost recently. I mean, the Xiaomi phones are, are, are quite cheap, I think. I'm, I'm not sure what the, Going prices now. Um, um, I, I do know. I think they're they operate on sort of um, very cheap to buy, but you pay with your data. Right. You okay. know, you pay in terms of uh, Xiaomi's collecting all your all your data. Right. Right. So uh, you know, at this point, everybody's collecting all your data. You kind of say, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, have at it. Uh, you know, I'm just a panhandler. What the hell? Um, and <laughs> it, it, all it, uh, the the added convenience for everybody makes it worthwhile. You just live with the surveillance mm-hmm. because one. Uh, the convenience is great. And two, you start to feel as, as I think everybody does with Airbnb or, uh, uh, Uber. Well, you know, if something bad happens, uh, this guy isn't really anonymous. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an important point to make about the, um, about social credit, which is that it's dual use. So, you know, it's, it solves real problems in society. Um, I'm not saying it's a great thing, but it, it does solve problems that people had. 
um, and, you know, provides them with a lot more convenience. Um, but then at the same time, there is this sort of soft surveillance going on. Um, and, you know, when you look at it on, on the issue of convenience, um, you know, when I, when I first moved to China in 2004, um, there were a lot of just basic tasks in life that were really difficult to accomplish. Um, you know, going, I remember trying to close my bank account in Beijing when I moved to Shanghai, you know, even though I had the same bank, I couldn't keep the account and, and, um, and, you know, this took like half an hour of reps coming over. And then finally somebody says, okay, just drain the money, keep it open. We can't close it. Like that, that was too, too hard. Uh, the banking system is just, yeah. Um, you know, people, the, it was like very difficult to get a credit card with a, with a bank other than your own. And in some cases, you need to get a credit card in the first place. Oh, so basically um, people are so, saying, so I just, I, I just never want to go into a bank again in my life. I will, I will give this data to Alipay oh, yeah. cheerfully. If I never have to go into a bank. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think probably most people kind of don't miss the experience of going to the bank of I mean, it. Just, um, you know, you have a very kind of classic state owned enterprise experience, or you did anyway, 10 years ago. I think the banks are having to evolve and as they face competition now from, from Tencent and, and um and financial oh they've they've um, already lost that so, fight i'm sorry they they, they yeah they're, yeah they're not gonna yeah win that's that. true that's, so that's let me true. let me but, ask so, how this how this uh-huh. works kind of to the ordinary person you actually got a score right uh uh and mm-hmm. and, and i it looks to me i i don't know you know when you went through the sat process but uh the scores look a lot like <laughs> sat scores they kind of start arbitrarily around yeah. 350 or something and they go up to some arbitrary mm-hmm. number around a thousand uh i and uh, yeah. it, it, uh you know what's a good score that's a good comparison well i can say it was a lot lower my my sesame credit score is a lot lower than my sat score <laughs> was um it's i mean a good score uh is with with Sesame Credit, this is the Ant Financial's um, uh, credit scoring system. is is in the seven hundreds, um, seven eight eight hundreds. Um, um, that will get you a lot of perks. Um, the system, I mean, extensively, it's, it's still in beta, um, which is crazy because they have two hundred over two hundred million. Oh, Jack Ma uh, learned users. that from Google. It'll be in beta until <laughs> yeah. uh, you know forever. <laughs> Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> so uh, let um, me let me ask this: uh, If you get a yeah. score over seven hundred, do you get more dates? More dates. Dates. Oh, you mean? Oh, you. Do people call oh, yeah, you up some, and say, "Hey, I'd dating. like to I'd like to hang out with you"? Well, some on some dating apps, yeah, you can, there um, you you do get some perks uh, if you have. Um, um, wait a minute. So, so, wait, 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 um, I, so they, in the Chinese version of Tinder, do they actually tell you what the the, the social credit score is of the of the uh, uh, people you're uh, uh, kind of test driving? Yeah, there's like a, a badge. There's a badge on some dating apps where you can add your score. Um, oh. but, you know, there that actually that exists in the U.S. too. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I can I can yeah. see that, and it's it's it's. Cheaper yeah, than buying a Lamborghini and getting your picture taken in it. That's true. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, this is to some degree like this is meant to be a vetting mechanism for, you know, kind of every aspect of your life. Um, but that's 
you know, so you see like rental car companies would use it, but um, so would maybe your landlord or so would, you know, we, the possibilities are, are, are Endless. So I, a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff that you compl- you complained about that uh, uh, came to you because you had that socially undesirable score at the beginning was basically uh, people said, well, I can't trust you. You're probably some con man, uh, so you're going to have to make a cash deposit, or you're, uh, and we'll give it back mm-hmm. to you when you give us back the bike or uh, uh, whatever. Um, it, are there other things where they just say, you know, we don't like you? Uh, and we're going to stick mm-hmm. you in a second class uh, uh, category uh, just because, you know, you don't seem like a very desirable person. Well, so right now, most of the um, penalties for having a low score are pretty mild, right? So um, so some people have complained, compared it to an airline rewards program. But I think we're headed toward toward worse. Penalties, and, and and so we have this one disturbing um, example now, which is um, along with the social credit system, the government's introduced these um, blacklists in in certain um, areas. Um, and so one is the Supreme People's Court blacklist. So people who haven't paid their court fines um, appear on this list, where they're not allowed to travel. Um, uh, you know, they can't buy train tickets, airplane tickets, so forth. Um, and that has been integrated into Sesame Credit. Um, so your Sesame Credit score will fall precipitously if you get on the blacklist. Um, now, that I, I, I would expect um, that we would see more of that sort of thing in the future. I mean, and it makes sense, too, if you're going to introduce the system, you introduce it with a lot of perks early on, right, so that people want to sign up for it. Yes, and at the risk of being a little politically incorrect, that is not much different from the experience of a man who has not paid his child support uh, in the United States. The mm-hmm. The very mm-hmm. aggressive penalties and uh, um, uh, uh, attachments that that occur uh, in an effort to collect uh, um, child support is mm-hmm. extraordinary, and mm-hmm. and and not you know most people in the United States will say, well, you owe the money, you ought to pay it, uh, and they might say the right. same thing about mm-hmm. uh, about uh, people's court judgments where you've been fined. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what's the point of having a fine if you don't pay it? Right. But of course, there are people who've been, um, fine. They feel unfairly. You know, I talked to one man who had, um, a case with the court where he had tried to pay the fine and the court never contacted him to tell him that they didn't receive it. Uh, and then, you know, it's, it's been very difficult for him to contest it. He's been on the blacklist for, for six months. Um, um, you know, the other, the other parallel in the U.S. might be with the sex offender registry system where, you have this um, badge of dishonor that really follows you into every area of life. Right, and um, we, we we hear all about the 18-year-olds who had a 16-year-old girlfriend who are on this list right. uh, forever. Right, right, right. Um, and you know, smartphone, like the, the the collection of data that happens through. Um, a mobile payment system, I think, makes it very difficult to, um, you know, to hide from from what you've done. Um, yeah. So, you know, but I, I, I understand how, especially in the hands of a 
Chinese People's Court, which probably uh, fines people for disrespecting Xi Jinping. Mm. Uh, uh, that uh, looks bad, uh, and it is bad, uh, but it's kind of mm. hard to say, you know, um, freedom is to be found in the inefficiencies of crappy enforcement systems. Uh, uh, it, may, it may be <laughs> yeah, that, uh, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, we're all going to have, because there's more data, enforcement of all the rules that govern us are going to be more determined and more effective, and we're all going to have mm-hmm. to fight over whether those uh those laws were, were, were good laws as opposed to just say, mm-hmm. yeah, try, you know, try to catch me. Yeah. Well, I do find it interesting that, um, you know, so l- l- researching social credit in China led me to look into data brokers in the, in the U S and, um, um, and I, I find it interesting that there's a lot, the discussion of social credit is much more on the surface and, People are made aware of what's happening. I mean, I think with the government system, they will not be given much choice over whether their data is collected or not. Um, with with um, something like Sesame Credit, they're allowed to, you know, opt in at this stage. Um, but but with a lot of um, digital tracking that happens in the U.S., um, you know, we're not we're not told that we're we're scored for this thing or that thing. Um, um, there's not quite the same. Uh, I think insidious goal of social control at the um, at the end of it, but um, but it, it, I, I do think part of, part of the reason that this article resonated with people is that um, you know Americans are we're much more fearful of the government collecting our data than we are of of companies, but on some level there there is this um, I think when you when you stop and think about it, everybody has a little bit of um, insecurity about the data that they're giving up every day. Of course. We, 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 I mean, we, and most we, people aren't willing to sacrifice the convenience of right. it, but, um, you know, but, but it's a fear that's there. Yeah, I, for sure. I, uh, and and uh, this kind of ties into uh, the recent headline, and I should uh, uh, divulge that we did work for MoneyGram in this case, but MoneyGram was going to be bought by mm-hmm. Alipay. Uh, uh, right. And Cynthia mm-hmm. said, no, you're not going to uh, purchase mm-hmm. a U.S. Uh, money transfer business. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Do you think that is tied to this you know, at least U.S. government concern about social credit ratings? Yeah, you know, I didn't, I would be curious to know the discussion that, that went on. Um, I know that there, um, you know, I believe that this is the third time that um, that this came up for consideration before Scythius. And um, I think that concern, you know, whether it's about social credit or just concern that, um, that Alibaba and Ant Financial are too close to the Chinese government, I think that that would be legitimate. Um, there is this sort of strategic nexus um, that has emerged um, between the tech companies and, and the Chinese government. And, um, you know, I, 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 there, there was, um, I, I'm, I'm working on a, a book on industrial espionage in, in the U.S. There has been some concern over the years that, that, that um, CFIUS has not been aggressive enough um, uh, toward Chinese investments in the U.S., and I think it's it's a, a good development that that people would say, oh wait a minute, 
um, this is this is technology that could potentially be used. Senator Cornyn has written a uh, uh, very detailed and uh, sweeping new law for CFIUS that will uh, uh, right. address to, uh, to some of those concerns and certainly aimed at China. Right. Um, and uh, right. we're going we're to have mm-hmm. uh, somebody from his office on to talk about this uh, uh, sometime in, oh, in, in the uh-huh. next month or so. Um, uh, uh, because, yeah, it's uh, I mean, Senator Cornyn, it's, he's, he's an able legislator in uh, uh, mm-hmm. the in, in leadership and he's done a really superb mm-hmm. job of building some uh, bipartisan consensus around the idea of a new statute uh, um, and mm-hmm. so it really has it has a uh, prospects for for passage uh, um, so yes we'll uh, oh, uh, could, uh, mm-hmm. if, if you if you subscribe to the uh, um, cyber law podcast you'll uh, uh, spot that when it happens and it'll I'm sure make your book uh, mm-hmm. better and then in you know in a uh, uh, Thoroughly incestuous relationship. When the book comes out, we'll invite you back on and uh, you can talk about it in another interview. <laughs> okay. I can't say that there is, there is, um, there is this, you know, interesting, uh, the tech, Chinese tech companies are really trying to, um, position themselves one way in the U.S. and then, and then kind of come across another way in China. And I, when, in reporting this piece, um, you know, I, uh, and Financial has big plans for international expansion, not just in the U.S., but um, in India and Thailand, um, um, you know, throughout the developing world. Um, and um, the way in is through Chinese tourists first, but then also, you know, they bought a stake in um, in uh, this uh, Indian mobile payment company recently. Um, and, and so they've set their targets really high. Um, but are arguing, um, you know, I, I was in touch with, with people there and trying to get a statement on the record for the article. And um, um, they argue that they really have nothing to do with the Chinese government. Um, but the case that they've made within China is very different. Um, and I, I did find an early um, uh, press release from when the, um, from, from 2014, I think, when the social credit system was first launching saying that they were kind of on board with the system and would aid in its development and and so you know I they're, they're trying to really have it both ways um, and and that's something that um, could eventually become would probably become more of an issue as and not just not just and financial but um, ten cents and other companies um, start to look overseas well and um, and and you you may be in a position to, to help with this I keep repeating that uh, China has such a role in the 5G mobile Internet uh, uh, that they have massive numbers of users in Europe and, and elsewhere outside of uh, China. Uh, all of the data that uh, they're collecting is collected in Europe and exported to China. Um, and uh, therefore is subject to European data protection law, including their egregiously arrogant uh, uh, EU court of justice uh, rulings about how European standards for human rights have to be applied everywhere that uh, accepts European personal data. Uh, 
a, mm-hmm. uh, a principle they have applied bravely, uh, uh, in quotes, uh, uh, for 25 years to the United States and have not once had the cojones to apply to China. Uh, so if you know anybody mm. who is a uh, user of these services who lives in Europe and wants to bring a human rights action that will really have bite with respect to uh, China – have them call me. I've, I've said I'll do this one pre, pro bono uh, uh, because I cannot believe that the Europeans uh, have been so hypocritical as to run the United States around the human rights flagpole for 20 years and never once raise this issue about China. So uh, they will have to sooner or later, uh, and I'd like to, to help them get there sooner. I was wondering, I'd like to jump in with one question yeah, about the social credit system. Okay. Um, you know, one of my activities is helping to run a private equity fund that invests in China. I spend a lot of time looking at China, and I agree that the reason for this is to clean up things in society, but I think there's made a bigger reason is that when we look at the risks to China, the big problem the Communist Party faces is social stability um, while they open up the country. Um, you know, people are have, have not been as quiescent as they were, um, although Chinese tend to be pretty, um, you know, nationalistic and, and don't complain a lot, despite the reports about dissidents. You know, but uh, this system really provides a solution to that. Um, it And it harks back to the Cultural Revolution days, as you pointed out, Stuart. It's like, you know, a better way to run communism when you can do totalitarianism with total information. And I think the Communist Party sees this as just a great method of social control. Sure. Um, you know, and how you feel about that depends upon where you sit. And I'd be interested to hear what Mara thinks about that. Uh, yeah, and, and, and I'll, I'll add something to it. Uh, I would have thought that mm-hmm. the way for the Chinese government to run this is we now know how they have a whole bunch of systems for telling people, you know, that tweet was not you, you shouldn't do that. Right. Don't do it again. Uh, and that's it's it's very soft kind of control of the content of uh, uh, tweets and uh, messages that you send out. Uh, but if they said, you know, you shouldn't do that and that'll cost you one point on your social credit rating, people might do it yeah. once or twice, yeah. but they ain't going to do it forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, what's interesting is about this um, this system is it's, it's uh, in addition to having rating systems for companies and for individuals, there is. It's also meant to monitor government officials. And um, so to provide Beijing a way to kind of keep track of what's happening outside of the center. Um, and, and one of the big concerns for the Communist Party, uh, obviously, is, is um, you know, corruption and, and governance um, within its own ranks. Um, and how... Of course, a system like that is going to be prone to abuse, and anytime you give people targets, um, I think, especially in China, government officials have shown that they'll find a way to um, to distort this, you know, to to kind of game the system. Um, but I, I I I do think it's it's envisioned as as a um, as a as a great way of social control and of controlling not just individuals, but, but low level officials. Um, the question is how this is all going to be integrated. Um, you know, I looked at one company's system in, in detail and talked a bit about the plans for 
um, the larger government system, but how you have cities unveiling their own social credit systems now, um, and then you have these national efforts kind of happening all at the same time, and how that all is going to be integrated um, is a um, is a big is an open question. I think it's the, not the integration um, point's really interesting. Yeah. Um, there was a BBC report that they sent somebody to Guiyang, which is a city sort of way in the middle of the country, who got a demonstration of their facial recognition system. Um, you know, yeah, they just went that. out and wandered around the city. They did an alert, and they found them in seven minutes. Um, and uh, well, when you combine mm-hmm. facial recognition with social credit, you've got a, you know, a pretty amazing, almost, uh, you know, you wouldn't have envisioned it in Brave New World or 1984, how much control there is. It's true. There is a lot of investment in, um, in biometric technologies in China now. But I am a little skeptical of that particular report because I think, um, I, I think he was flagged when he, uh, tried to, um, when he scanned his ticket at the, at the bus station. So that would have brought up his ID number. Um, and for mm-hmm. a lot of the, a lot of the reports on facial recognition technologies in China. So actually, you know, like Alipay or, um, and, and financial product, they introduced something called smile to pay recently um you know a lot of um a lot of those technologies require a second identifier at this stage so with, with smile to pay you have to put it you have to plug in your cell phone number um so i guayang is you know guizhou was traditionally um the least developed one of the least developed provinces in china they've, they've put a lot of money into these uh, into big data um but i'm a little skeptical about how how operational their their system is is now. Um, I do think it was it was interesting that the reporter was able to get into the um, you know, that the police were so willing to to show him around. Um, uh, and 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 I'm sure that that um, the system will will improve over over the coming years. Um, but I think now there are a lot of local governments making claims about their capabilities and and and. It's not totally clear that um, that police can pick somebody out of a crowd um, without additional information about that person. So I I, I did think that buried in the uh, notion that the uh, Beijing is watching its local officials through these systems was good news for China's banks because it means that the one thing you won't pay with a QR code is bribes. And that's, you know, a good 10% mm-hmm. of the GDP, probably bribes. So, uh, that's, yeah. they, they, that's a, that's a piece of the market uh, where cash is going to be king for a while. Uh, Mara, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Is there, uh, do you have any, um, other events or papers or studies other than the book that's coming out in the fall, uh, uh that uh, our listeners should be watching for? Nothing coming out. I mean, I do have a piece on, uh, coming out in science in a few months that will follow on some of these themes. I can't say too much about it now, okay. but, um, um well, all right. Well, you know, with a, interesting. with a name like Fistendahl, it's, uh, uh, you know, people are going to be at a loss trying to Google you for, uh, uh updates. Uh, um, <laughs> Okay, this has been episode 197 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, please do suggest inter- guest interviewees, and if they come on the show, we will uh, provide you with a 
highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Send your suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, com. Coming up, we've got Tim Moore to discuss his new book, Cyber Mercenaries, The State Hackers in Power, among other guests. Uh, and as you heard, we're going to try to get uh, I, one of Senator Cornyn's staffers on to talk about his uh, CFIUS bill. Uh, we hope you'll join us for that and other programs as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.